Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to The Plays the Thing. You have joined us for William Shakespeare's Henry IV, Part 1, and you have joined us particularly for Act 4. We are fully enmeshed, you guys, in battle now. It's all battle all the time. My name is Tim McIntosh. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Brandon LeBlanc. And we are so glad that you joined us for All Battle All the Time. Hey, when we last spoke, you guys, we had this thought that all of these personal intrigues are kind of coming to a head. Prince Hal is figuring out who he is. Hotspur is clashing with his family and friends over the rebellion against um, Prince Hal's father, Henry IV. And of course, we have Falstaff kind of up to hijinks in the background. Um, And we kind of left with a question, and Brandon, I'm going to ask you this question to see if you made any progress on this question. Have the political intrigues in this play, have you been able to kind of map them onto the interpersonal intrigues in this play? Did you have any luck in Act 4, Brandon? Tell us about that. Yeah, I I said I was going to try and do my best to see this section with, with Heidi's eyes because it's all that. And I, I think I maybe need to spend more time reading history plays with Heidi. Cause I'm not sure I'm very good at it yet, but I'll give it my best shot. Um, we have a section in there where we find out that Hotspur's father's not coming. He's growing ill. Um, uh, someone else, other forces are not coming to his aid that are supposed to be coming. Uh, I think, right. I think Glenn Dowers maybe. So there's this, um, there's this internal weakness starting to emerge with, with kind of this guy, this force that's kind of been this outwardly unstoppable force, right? Hotspur and now all his people who are following him. He's, uh, and then we get these, these descriptions of, of Hal and all his splendor um, uh, coming into battle from, from one of the opponents. And so I was just trying to, um, to see if the, the kind of weakening of the opposing forces on the political scene in some way mirror the, the beginnings of 
the internal weakenings for um, both Henry the Fourth and Falstaff are two parental figures for for Hal here. Mm. Um, this kind of they're kind of on their way out as he's on his ascendancy in in, in many ways, right? And so um, you also have Falstaff who like was supposed to recruit actual squad, you know, fighters, yeah. and he like right. Takes money, takes money from those guys. Yeah, he's like, hey, if you don't want to fight, just give me some money. I'll hire some of your place. And he hires like people. He has to pay nothing, right? Beggars and prisoners, so he can keep yeah. money. So he's this kind of outward sheen. It's this false, you know, false regiment almost. And so that was my best shot at it. And that those are starting to. Um, and then we get this outward vision of Henry in splendor, military splendor, that is maybe a foreshadowing of him of that side of him emerging victorious. Um, over the kind of shallow howl. That's pretty funny. Shallow howl we had of in the earlier parts of the book. So, so it, it sounds like you're saying kind of like, yeah, we could do kind of a symmetry between the political forces and the per- personal forces, but it's a little bit of a forced exercise. It doesn't, it's not really that neat. Is that at least, that, at least in what I saw, but I have no doubt that there's probably things I'm not picking up on because I'm not as well versed in the history plays as, um, our, our fair co-host here. So, uh, maybe yeah, how, do, how do you, how do you feel? You feel like Brandon, um, missed something that was there or did he kind of like do the best with the materials that were given to him? I think that act four in this play is the weakest act, uh, which is unusual for a Shakespeare play. Um, it is, well, it's still brilliant and it still has everything that we're looking for. And I, I do want to shed maybe a little bit of light on that, which is funny considering the sun imagery, as Brandon pointed out in this particular scene, um, or excuse me, this particular act. Um, But I think that in general, with an act four, you're usually looking at, uh, in a Shakespeare play, a whole lot of tumult and really important things happening that come about as the turning point in act three. In act four, in this particular play, you're seeing, you continue to see a gathering of forces and a building of tension. Um, Mm. And, and that's actually not very common in Shakespeare, Uh, but we do have that here. And so we have to ask ourselves why, right? This is a play in which you get the climax of the play in act five, not in act four. Um, And like I said, that's, that's pretty unusual. Um, But I think it works really well in this play, actually really, really well. I think it was the right decision on Shakespeare's part, which not that in my opinion should matter having anything to do with Shakespeare because Shakespeare is the master. And we all know that, um, But one thing that you pointed out that I think is really important is that this is the first time in this play that we get the comparison of the sun with Prince Hal. And that's really important because in Shakespeare's plays, especially in this particular tetralogy, beginning in Richard II, continuing in this play, and in the next two plays, um, we have uh, the sun is always equated with the king. Um, And for a couple of reasons. One, we have a really important word that you used, Brandon, because you're a genius, which is the word ascendancy. We're getting the ascendancy of, I know, like, yes, as, as Prince Hal is dominant. 
donning his armor, um, he is, what we're seeing is like the true king is rising, right? And in this rise, in this donning of armor, which is a putting on of, of, of the trappings of war and the trappings of kingship, he is taking on an identity off stage that we're going to see him fully inhabit for the first time in act five. And I think that's why Shakespeare gives us a little bit of break in the action here. Um, we have characters on stage talking about what's happening off stage with Prince Hal. The true king is rising um, like the sun. He's also illuminating like the sun and he's also dazzling like the sun. And all of that is beginning to work on us as the audience. Uh, and so I think that we do have a, a, a confluence of the personal and the political just in that simple image because in donning armor it's not an actual ontological change of identity it's an assumption of the trappings of something and I think that's really important when we're talking about Prince Hal in choosing to inhabit the identity of a king it's like putting on armor and going into battle for him like it's 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 not something he wants it's something he has to do um and so for the first time off stage we see prince hal owning a duty of kingship i i think that's important i also think you brought up another really good point of the of the integration of the personal and the political in this act which is the father issue um, fathers are a very very big deal in this play the influence of fathers and who their sons become uh, with how we talked about how he has these two opposing father figures and actively competing father figures Falstaff and King Henry um, but Hotspur in in some ways has uh, he instead of his instead of kind of his fathers coming together to to push him into leadership he has he's he's abandoned one at a time by these father figures in his life. Uh, first by his father, who, by the way, he never asks about other than he's not coming. He never says, oh, my mm. father's really sick. He's grievous Is he sick. Well? Is he okay? That's Is great. he going to die? Mm. He never asks that. He just says, well, he's not here. I'm going to foolhardily rush into battle, right? Uh, he's also abandoned by Glendower, who he's already alienated, who could have been a father figure to him, right? And so with Hal, he's constantly wrestling and juggling and trying to keep his father's close to him. I want to keep Falstaff and I want to keep my dad, right? However, with, with Hotspur, we have the opposite happening. I don't even care. I don't care how my dad is doing. He doesn't need to be here. I don't need Glendower. I don't need anybody. I'm just going to rush into battle. So we see more evidence of him as Hotspur, um, as, as foolhardy. And then we also see kind of the falling away of his, uh, uh, of his trappings of leadership, right? When Henry is taking his, uh, when Prince Hal is taking his up, and I think that those opposing forces were always looking in this play for doubles and what's going on with one, one side of the devil double means that, uh, that, that probably the opposite or an inversion of that's going on with the other double. And I think we do see that in this act. When you said you, you used a couple times, Heidi, the word donning, he was donning his word, armor. And I, yeah, I thought you were kind of like making a little pun as like D-A-W-N-ing, you know, because we were talking about the sun. Yeah. Thank you for noticing. It was impressive. It was impressive. Even if puns are the lowest form of humor, I still think, no, no, I still think you deserve credit. Thank you. Heidi. I wouldn't describe Even, it as a dad joke though. I think that honor it's not, applies yeah. only to the one and only Tim McIntosh. As like 
the king of the thing is i am not good at dad jokes i don't like dad jokes really? but i feel like in my dotage i'm suddenly like leaning dotage. towards dad jokes yeah. i just want to say tim that you know you know you know i just think that you're the best one of the best humans ever but it did make me chuckle that we just finished recording uh the close reads flagship show just about 15 mm-hmm, minutes mm-hmm. ago and at the end of the show you were like i don't think i can do another one i'm too tired <laughs> But okay, every time we have a two podcast day, I say to myself, this is the last time I do two podcasts. It, they're tiring to me. It is. It's trappings. That is, that is the truth. It's an exhausting experience. It requires an exhausting experience. I have to record something else solo later today. And I'm going to, I'm going to wait like probably a couple hours to go to the the good evening. I don't know what it is, but it is. it does feel to me how I felt after I taught a class. Mm-hmm. Like, you're so aware of what is going on in your surroundings, you know? You're like, is this student paying attention? Is that student having a bad day, you know? Like, you're kind of like gleaning all this information while also at the same time kind of like delivering something to the class. It's a kind of back and forth that just... It just demands a it lot. Takes a anyway, lot of energy. That's true. It does take a lot of energy. Hey Tim, Much, did you do yeah. vocal exercises before class like you do before plays and podcasts? Just curious. Wait, what kind of exercises? Vocal exercises to kind of get ready for. No, I did not. Just no, I did what do you not. say before no. we get on the air? What is it? Sibilance. Sibilance. There was a. There was an the old sounds like it, it. It's hard in the microphone. Yeah. You got to like tighten those up right before you get yeah. on air. Yeah, you got to really yeah. tighten those it's up. It's fun every it's time true. to see you practice it and Heidi giggle. It's it's always a good good time. Oh, I didn't know that Heidi. G- I do do Heidi a little giggles every once in a while. I've been known to you giggle. giggle when I'm preparing. No, I don't do that. <laughs> no idea what you're no. talking about. One of the other things you're that's a consummate um, professional, Tim, consummate professional. So that's actually Thank true. You. That actually is true. One of the things that I'm noticing about Hotspur is um, he's growing arrogant. This mm. messenger comes to him, and um, Hotspur kind of wants to entice the messenger to join his ranks while at the same time insulting him as being a bad, like probably a bad warrior. And you're like, what are you doing, bro? Like, if you really need somebody to join your team, is the way to get them to join your team by insulting them? Is this the path of wisdom? This is not the path of wisdom. Yeah, I don't know. The, You're Hotspur right. is it's, it's funny because he is, he's foolish. But at the beginning of the play, he's on the ascendancy. Mm-hmm. He's moving upward. Mm-hmm. He's this indomitable force. I, I like you respect him. And then gradually, it's like a real masterful work in character study. He gradually decays or that's who he was the whole time. And we're just kind of gradually seeing his true interior. Right. Well, I think, I think it's so like so many athletes, right? You're like at the beginning, everybody's like, this guy can't lose. He's winning battles left and right. And mm-hmm. that's great when it's like the fans and the guys in the court in the, in this case, in the guys in the court, King's court saying it, it's always bad when the, when the person starts going, I can't lose. Right. Yeah. Then, right. Then, then you know they're setting up for a big fall, and this—that's where he is. Like, okay, my dad's not coming. Glendower's not coming. Whatever. The horses are still tired from getting here yesterday. Half of them aren't here yet. Let's We're go. Fine. Let's it. go tonight. Let's go yeah. tonight. And it's—it's it's just this hubris, right? That that he—he's yeah. he, bought his own uh, press clippings. This guy can't lose. 
it's hubris and the forces of rebellion are beginning to splinter mm-hmm. while the forces of rule are beginning to kind of congeal. They're coming together. Hal and his father are joining. Even Falstaff is kind of like joining together. But at this point, Falstaff is really kind of taking a backseat to the main action. And I, this is another thing that I really respect about this play, that Shakespeare is able to kind of diminish um, diminish the influence of Falstaff on the plot without losing him completely. Because as we said earlier in these episodes, Falstaff is such a huge character. It's tempting to just let him take over. Shakespeare won't let him do that, though. He kind of pushes him to the back seat. Hal rises throughout this play. Yeah, and it's it's really an excellent, excellent job of craft, considering what a robust and explosive character Falstaff is. Yeah, I think you're right. And I, I want to make one more comment on that, remembering that this play just stands alone, but is part of a tetralogy. So if if you think of this play... Uh, mirroring in structure some way uh, or mimicking in structure some way the structure of Richard II in a reverse way. And hear me tell you what I mean by that. Um, In Richard II, Richard is at the bottom at the beginning of the play. He's immediately Mm -hmm. unlikable and we see him make terrible decisions both personally and if you can use kingship as a profession, also professionally, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And, and, and you hate him. And I'm actually teaching Richard II to my students right now. And we're just in act two, right when John of Gaunt dies and they hate Richard so mm, much. And I'm, I yeah. love that. I love that when I teach this play, they hate Richard because he, Shakespeare's about to do a little, he's about to mess with you a bit because in yeah. act three, you begin to be sympathetic with him. And, uh, and, and that's intentional, right? You start to see him as a man, not just a king and that you're supposed to. And so it goes from bad. That's when the famous monologue, let us speak now of graves. It's this moment of reckoning for Richard II. Oh, I'm not just a king. I'm a a person. And he starts punning on the word I, again, speaking to puns as a great form of literary, you know, achievement. Or the lowest. He starts to pun on the word I, um, and he starts to shift back and forth in his pronouns with the word we, um, because, you know, the royal we is the kingship, but the personal I is the man. And and it's just brilliant. And Tim and I talked about that when we did the series on Richard II. So I encourage you to go listen to that if you haven't already. Um, But that was, that play happens right before for this one in the tetralogy. So you have the king as you looking at him as a bad king who is kind of revealed to be not such a bad man, maybe even a good man, right? And then, and it messes with you as the audience. And so you're you're able to kind of, you have to hold that intention um, as the audience and, and let yourself kind of enter into the tragedy of a deposed king um, and what that means for him as a person, not just for the nation, right? Um, and, and in this play, we have the opposite happening with the same kind of movement. And here's what I mean by that. So think of it like a teeter-totter. Like in the beginning of Richard II, you don't like him, and then you kind of come to like him, but you still wonder if the nation's not better off without him, and that forms the complexity of the play. Uh, in this play, we have a teeter-totter too, because we're started off with thinking that the prince is a bad man right? He doesn't take things seriously. He is, uh, he's not worthy of the kingship. He's just a punk kid out partying with his friends. Um, 
and so you've got that at the beginning. And then now we begin to see the teeter-totter kind of come up. And instead of thinking of him as a bad man, we're like, well, maybe he's like a really good king. So it's the opposite of what happened in Richard II. And, and yeah. you begin to, but you're still, re, you're still wrestling as the audience with the complexity of that. What does that mean, right? What happens then to the other people? Instead of what just happens to Prince Hal, now we're wondering what happens to Falstaff then? Mm. What happens to Hotspur, mm. right? And so it's, it's, it's a similar kind of messing with the head of the audience, a similar kind of disequilibrium that, that Shakespeare is creating, but op, in an opposite or an inverted way. Um, and, and it's brilliant. Like, it's so brilliant, the structuring of this play as compared yeah. to the other plays within the Tetralogy. And yet it still is, I think it's one of, if, I think it's one of his top five greatest plays ever um, for, for that reason. Heidi, I'm going to come back to that comment with a couple of quotes. And the quotes are from Charles Van Doren, great classic scholar who thinks Henry IV Part One is the best that Shakespeare did. I love him. It's his best play. And I'm going to read to you a long quote by George Bernard Shaw, who thinks that this is his worst play. It's Shakespeare's worst play. I'm going to read both those quotes to each of you and kind of get your reactions in a little bit. But I want to do a little side rail. I want to think back to Prince Hal's character. And I just want to remember how little... So when we open the play, Prince Hal is kind of under the spell of Falstaff, this... He's not a respectable guy. He's a wonderful character. Maybe he's a heartbroken character, um, but he's not someone that we really respect as a great force for moral and spiritual goodness in the world, right? I think we're all agreed about that. Hal is plainly under his spell. He, there's a rupture with his father, between Hal and his father. And I think what's really interesting is we don't know the reasons why. We don't know why he's under Falstaff's spell, we don't, re- we don't know why he's ruptured with his father. That is opaque. And so Heidi, so Brandon, Heidi and David and I had this conversation last week about this wonderful New Yorker art- article that came out, I think it was in January, uh, The Case Against the Trauma Plot. Yeah. And the author of this, of this article, it's really good. If, you, if anybody can like get hold of this, Parul... Segal is the name of the author. And basically what the author of this um, essay is saying is that the trauma plot is kind of become this kind of cheap way of telling a story in that it kind of goes into the wounds of the character as a way of it kind of explaining their current behavior. The author is not saying that like, you know, like our past traumas don't influence us or anything like that. But there's kind of a, um, it's become kind of a ubiquitous literary and filmmaking trope. And the author contrasts the trauma plot with Shakespeare's treatment of his heroes and antiheroes in which he says, Shakespeare just doesn't give us that background. And it effectively does something to us, the audience. And here's what it does. It makes us basically kind of attach ourselves to the character 
in this case, Prince Hal, and we imagine what the circumstances were that caused him to lean in toward Falstaff and lean away from his father. We can imagine all sorts of things, some sort of whatever, abuse from his father, some sort of um, like falling out with his mother, some sort of, like we can imagine a whole host of different things, but it's us that's imagining it. It's us that's bringing that to the table. And we're kind of putting ourselves in with how we're kind of identifying with him because whatever it is that we bring to the table, we're probably going to say like, maybe it was something like what I experienced. Maybe it was something like what my um, best friend experienced. And so there's a kind of deepening relationship between the protagonist or the antagonist and us that makes for a, a kind of a richer storytelling because we don't have it all spelled out for us. And I just wondered what you guys thought about that. Do you find the lack of backstory with Hal to be something that you imagine what his backstory is since it's not given to us by Shakespeare? Have you posited something about what happened to Hal? If it, and maybe it's not like one singular event. Have you kind of like posited a kind of pattern to his background, Heidi? Yeah, for sure. I have. And I, I think I read that that article, like you said, and I loved it. I think it's brilliant. Um, I think that one other thing that 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 trauma plot does is um it takes away in 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 the in the trauma plot, in attempting to create complexity, it actually makes the character simplistic. Yes, um, right. And uh, by saying this is the reason, and so therefore, you know, I'm going to pick a recent movie that did this, right? Because of this terrible thing that happened with puppies when she was a little girl, Cruella DeVille mm-hmm. then kind of mm-hmm. gets a free pass on killing puppies. Right. Yeah. Right. So in yeah. attempting to create this complexity, it actually makes the character simplistic and flat. Um, And that's the opposite of its intent, but a great character is a vessel for us, for the reader, right? right? Um, And that is in Prince Hal, you asked me if I've done that. Yes, I have, but not for myself. I've I've done that because of my husband. Like I see so much Mm. of Scott in Prince Hal Mm. and and I'm like totally in love with this character. Like I would crawl into Mm. this play and marry him, right? And and I, I love him so much. And it's because I love my husband and I see some of the same, the same thing, the same conflicts, the same questions in him. Uh, And, and, but I don't know if it's really there or if I'm projecting it. And what's so great about stories is it's perfectly safe to project onto stories. Do it, like own it, right? Like if it takes you into the heart of the story, project onto that story. Like it's better than doing it in real life to real people. I think that's one of the reasons why stories are so healing is because we get to project without anything at stake other than our own imaginations and experiences yeah. with the story. Um, and and so, I, I mean, I think we should humbly approach a story and see it within its own world and all those kinds of things too. But there's, a, there's this sense of safety that the story can handle it in a way that a person or a situation or your own child or whatever can't. Um, and that's one yeah. of the reasons why stories are so healthy and healing for us as humans. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure Heidi, you can see professionally how this is such a 
bad way from your counseling background, but they, it's essentially an A plus B equals C psychology, right? For these characters, which is just not how human beings work, right? Like lots of people's might've had a traumatizing experience with a dog when they were a kid. Some of them turn out to be people who kill dogs. Some of them have host dog fights. Some of them turn out to be huge dog lovers and veterinarians, right? So like, there's no, there's no A plus B when it comes to that. It's, it's a whole stew of that, who that person is and their experiences. And I think that's why it ends up feeling cheap because um, in, I think what, it, I think what it does is unless you have the, a very, very similar trauma and a very similar um, kind of response to that trauma, if you do, then you can, then you connect with that character really easily. Right. And like, so then there's this cult group of people who love that character and love that story because of that. But if you don't, then you can't. Whereas with what Shakespeare does, because it's so open-ended, like you were saying to him, I can attach, I don't think I've given conscious thought to what may have made Hal act like this. I think mm-hmm. I just recognized a lot of guys do this in their twenties and some of them it's because their dad was a jerk. Some of them it's because, you know, they, uh, just by personality are, are kind of flighty for early on or whatever it is. Um, and I think therefore it feels real because it's, there's not this, here's why Hal is like this because it's yeah. so easy to go. Well, I know a lot of people who had that experience and didn't turn out like Hal, Right. And so yeah. it's, um, and, and, and it's not just his protagonist, right? I mean, with Hotspur, even I can identify early on with Hotspur's frustration because he was treated wrongly by a superior. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's, there's so little, and everybody's experienced that everybody's experienced that in a situation where there's so little recourse for you, that there's nothing you can do about it. Um, and so that's a, that's an experience that anybody can, can see happen on the stage and connect themselves with Hotspur and like put themselves in his shoes a little bit. Yeah. Um, Whereas if you give all his psychosis beforehand, it's kind of like, well, that guy is a psychopath, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I'm not like that. And so um, as opposed to, oh, that guy's human and I get it. I get, I get his reaction. Um, he's making a mistake. He makes a mistake, but I, I see how he got there. Right. Yeah. So, right. I also wonder if the trauma plot kind of debilitates the idea of agency as in, if we know like if we give a, if Shakespeare provided a singular reason why Hal was injured and thus ruptured with his dad and thus started hanging out with Falstaff, then he's kind of um, boxed into an aquarium and he, in which he can't really grow, which is the thing that we want more than anything from this play. So we want to see him rise. We want to see him make peace with his father. We want to see him, even though we love, I love Falstaff. We want to see him kind of like grow out of that mode. And I think if Hal is just a trauma point, then the possibility that as an agent who can make choices and progress, he's kind of handcuffed. He kind of can't do that. He can't really grow. So yeah. that's another reason why I think we're talking about the trauma plot now because um, I think the notion of victimhood, culturally speaking, is such a vibrant, bright, and important understanding kind of like in the way that we think about um, people, groups, and individuals. We think like, who are the victims out there and what is my stance to them? 
And I think what we have, what we are not doing that much of is thinking like, um, what, what, what is the process by which a group or a single person grows from victimhood into health and maturity? And, you know, because I think everybody agrees remaining with, remaining in a situation where I am a victim, she is a victim, they are victims. It's debilitating in a way. And nobody wants to remain in that position, no matter how much harm has been done to them. And it's like, culturally speaking, we don't really have that second question, which is how do we become like how? What are the, what are the steps toward growth? How do we move out of the place where I was, you know, I was injured. Um, and I step into a place where I'm stronger now. Yeah. You know, I, I started reading that article, the one from the New York you're talking yeah. about, and I haven't finished it, but then I started a different, I read a di- different article that referenced it. And that article was all about the rise of using these pseudo psychological terms in social media that, and it was mm. kind of the point was if everything is a trauma, then is anything really trauma? Yeah. Um, right. And I think it's that same, exactly what you're talking about. There's, there's, it's not to discredit the real knowledge or, or real suffering, but the, how do we move past is, yeah, your parents are going to be a disappointment to you in some way, shape or form, right? Like whatever, whatever Henry the fourth did to, to, to make his son kind of wander off at some point, Hal's got to figure out how to deal with that and grow up. Right. And that's true for people. And that, that, that doesn't negate whatever trauma it was, but that's the more important side of of us in story, right. Is how do we, how do we continue to be human and, and become more human and if a story can give us that, it's, I think, much more rewarding than just feel bad for this character because of their trauma. Right. Right. So. Right. Yeah. Okay. I want to um, shift us toward this question from Mark Van Doren, from George Bernard Shaw. I'm just going to read each of these, uh, each of these quotes from you guys and I, I just kind of want your reaction. I know that you both love this play. So I, I know that you're going to kind of like lean toward Charles Van Doren in this, but I, I, I'm curious to know if you think George Bernard Shaw has, there's anything true about what he's saying. Okay, let me read Charles Van Doren first. Here it is. He's making the case that Henry IV Part One is Shakespeare's best. No play of Shakespeare is better than Henry IV. Certain subsequent ones may show him more settled in the maturity where he here attains almost at a single bound, but nothing that he wrote is more credited with life or happier in its imitation of human talk. The pen that moves across these pages is perfectly free of itself. The host of persons assembled for our pleasure can say anything for their author he wants to say. The poetry of Hotspur and the prose of Falstaff have never been surpassed in their respective categories. The history, as a dramatic form, ripens here to a point past which no further growth is possible. And in Falstaff alone, there is sufficient evidence of Shakespeare's mastery in the art of understanding style and, through style, of creating men." That's Charles Van Doren. That's a, that's a great quote. That's a great quote. The history as a dramatic form ripens here to a point past which no further growth is possible. Heidi, Brandon, 
comments on Mark Van Doren? Um, I, I love how he ends that there through style of creating men. That is mm-hmm. so, I mean, it's, it reminds me of Shakespeare and Henry II when, uh, uh, Bolingbroke is lamenting his fate, um, of being banished in act one. And, uh, and so Richard, um, commutes his sentence, takes it down from 10 years to six years. Um, and, and Bolingbroke is struck by that and says, with one word, you have given me back four years of my life. And then he says, Mm. such is the breath of Kings. And Mm. that is just such a beautiful, I I think about that all the time, such as the breath of Kings to be able to have the power to create with a word, something real that is, that controls the fate of people and nations, such as the breath of Kings. That's a, that's a power. That's a power unsurpassed in, in humanity. Um, And, 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 in a way, Shakespeare understood that such as the breath of poets, right? Um, it doesn't necessarily create it in the real world, but it creates it in the imagination, which is in many ways a more powerful place. And um, and and that's Shakespeare, right? Such as the breath of poets that keep by, but just stringing words together, he gives us Falstaff, who's this enduring character who will never die. Like men die, real men die. Falstaff will never die. And he will- yeah create a reaction and a response in audiences and readers for as long as Shakespeare's ever read, which I hope and believe mm. will be all of human history. So that is powerful. I love that. I think that's so true. Yeah. Um, I think he might yeah. overstate a little bit of um, in the, the quote about um, there's no more further, like I just kind of resist the idea that there's yeah. no further growth possible in a writer, no matter how great like maybe it is. Henry V was better. Right. Like maybe Henry V was an improvement like on the form. I think that this is one of Shakespeare's greatest plays, but it's also one of my favorite plays. And I don't want to get those two things conflated. They're not the same yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Right. So yeah. yeah, that's I think that might overstate it a little bit, but I think he's really on to something. Yeah. I there's this quote from uh oh gosh, Howard's end in which a lecturer is talking about Beethoven's fifth symphony. And he begins his lecture by saying, surely no more sublime sound has ever touched the human ear than Beethoven's fifth symphony. And you're like, come on, really? No more sublime sound than that sound? Like maybe we could, there might be an improvement out there somewhere, but anyway, Brandon, uh, Mark Van Doren, what do you think? I too really love how it ends. And I love his choice of, of saying that in fall stuff alone, there's sufficient evidence for Shakespeare's mastery in the art of understanding and style, because as we've talked about Shakespeare, uh, false a character that some people love and some people hate um, or are disgusted by or whatever. Um, but I think this gets right at the heart of what we were just, ta- what we were just talking about that Shakespeare's style. Uh, he Falstaff could be a stock character, right? I mean, in, in a lot of ways, in a lesser man's hands, he's just kind of this bumbling drunk. Right. And I think false has probably maybe his greatest, um, maybe his greatest example of this, a character that in most playwrights hands would be kind of a stock character, just this kind of thing. Who's distracting Hal. 
um, fun loving guy who's distracting Hal. But in Shakespeare's hands, like Heidi said, he becomes this enduring character that never dies. Yeah. And I think, I think Shakespeare's mastery of style, this proves to be true in so many of his plays that even his stock characters are not st- often not really stock. Yeah, they, right. they, they feel like real live inhabited people, even on the page, even when you don't see it on the, on the stage, even when you read it on the page, which mm-hmm. is just incredible, right? You, to think about that he was writing it as a play where someone was going to get to act it out and, and give it breath and life. But even on the page, it's those characters, their stock characters are more real, realistic than some of these protagonists that are psychological studies in modern novels. Yeah, um, right, right. If, if like, that's such a stark contrast to me. And then I think he's right that in Falstaff, you probably have one of, if not his greatest example of that, right? It's this, what could be a throwaway character or side character is so fully embodied. So, yeah. Okay. Gird up your loins for (laughs) George Bernard Shaw. Everything that charm of style, rich humor, and vivid natural characterization can do for a play are badly wanted by Henry IV, which has neither the romantic beauty of Shakespeare's earlier plays nor the tragic greatness of the later ones. The combination of conventional propriety and brute masterfulness in his, Prince Hal's, public capacity with a low-lifed black guardsman in his private taste is not a pleasant one. No doubt, he is rude to nature as a picture of what is by no means uncommon in English society, an able young Philistine inheriting high position and authority, which he holds on to and goes through with by keeping a tight grip on his conventional and legal advantages but who would have been quite in his place if he had been born a gameskeeper or a farmer? George Bernard Shaw. Harsh words, man. Let's, okay, I'm going to read the quote one more time because I think it's, whatever you think of it, it's beautifully written. He makes his case with great flair. George Bernard Shaw, one of the great um, playwrights of the 20th century, a Brit and a notorious critic of Shakespeare, not because that he thought that Shakespeare wasn't a great writer, but that he thought, and Tolstoy thought the same thing, Shakespeare is not a strong moral voice. He equivocates too much. He doesn't have like a clear reforming stand. That's what George Bernard Shaw, and later that's what Tolstoy kind of like want out of their writers. They want someone with like a, like a, a clear social agenda for improvement. Okay, I'm going to come to you in a sec, Heidi, but I just want to read it one more time. Everything that charm of style, rich humor, and vivid natural characterization can do for a play are badly wanted in Henry IV, which has neither the romantic beauty of Shakespeare's earlier plays nor the tragic greatness of the later ones. The combination of conventional propriety and brute masterfulness in his, Prince Hal's, public capacity with a low-lifed black guardsman in his private tastes is not a pleasant one. No doubt he is rude to nature as a picture of what is by no means uncommon in English society, an able young Philistine inheriting high position and authority, which he holds on to and goes through with by having a tight grip on his conventional and legal advantages. 
but who would have been quite in his place if he had been born a gameskeeper or a farmer? Heidi, so I turn to with, you. Yeah, I mean, with George Bernard's shot, as you said, his flair, he he manages to, and this is characteristic of his writing, he manages to take something that's not wrong and make it sound really awful, right? Like, so, <laughs> right. Um, like he's he is such an incisive satirist, right? Um, mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. he does this with with all things related to culture. Um, like look look at this he funny inflates. thing about human culture, and I'll take it to the extreme and make it look ridiculous, which is that's the job yeah. of a satirist. Like that's that's yeah. he's doing his job. He's right about Prince Hal. Like that's that's true about him. He is a person born to a vocation, just as a shoemaker would have been born to inherit his father's shoemaking store, right? Um, and he's he happens to have been born to a king, and so he has to grow up to be a king, and and that is the conflict of the play. And yeah. um, but I think that actually speaks to the play's greatness. Not it's not something to lampoon. I think that's what Shakespeare was trying to do. He's trying to give us a vessel for our own, uh, as, as we were just talking about a few minutes ago, he's giving us through Hal a vessel for our own conflicts between duty and desire, our own need to inhabit the role that we've been given and rise to it, our own conflicts, generational conflicts, you know, Hal wrestles with the fact that his father usurped the throne and he's going to inherit it. What do I do about that? He has enemies, Mm. right? And so he's, he's, Shakespeare's giving, given us a story that is an artifact within itself, defying any need to allegorize it. It's not an allegory. However, it Mm. also is an allegory of the soul. Right. And, and that is, I think what George Bernard Shaw is saying is he's just an ordinary guy who cares whether he becomes the King or not. Right. But I'm saying that's the whole point. He's an ordinary guy. He has to become a King. That's the whole conflict. And that is what makes it great. Um, But I think if George, but to George Bernard Shaw, who doesn't, who intentionally has cultivated a persona and a reality of stripping things of transcendence, whether it's God or Shakespeare, this is the natural Mm -hmm. conclusion that you'd come to. That was a really powerful impromptu response. Huh? Yeah. I just want to note that. I really want to note that. That was Brandon. way more in depth. I was sitting up here trying to just muster my inner Chesterton and knowing I, <laughs> knowing I wouldn't do nearly as good a job as John Hodges did this past summer with you, Tim. Um, right. And I was thinking, I want to quip something that Chesterton would quip would be like, Mr. Shaw, you have landed all the facts and none of the truth, right? You know, like it's just- Yeah, like right, right, of, right, yeah. Um, that was good, I liked uh, that. <laughs> yeah, that was He's good. right, he would be quite in his place. He'd be born a gamekeeper or a farmer. He'd been perfectly happy, right? Yeah. C- catching, yeah. trapping pheasants and and drinking beer with false stuff. And, um, right. But he's not. And so, um, like Heidi said, he doesn't say anything that's not true of the characters, yeah. but he yeah. misses the point, either on purpose or because I think like Heidi was saying, he's cultivated this, view of the world that's that that strips it of any any transcendence as being false and um yeah which is why he and chesterton had all those great letters for so many years so right for sure yeah for sure okay we've reached the end of act four we will um 
reach the happy and bloody conclusion of Henry IV Part One next week with Act Five. And of course, as is our tradition, we will have a Q&A episode for anything that we didn't address in this play that you wanted us to address. You can post those on the Close Reads face, Discussion Facebook page. Um, and we'd love to hear from you there. As always, we thank you so much for joining us. And we ask you to join us next week for Henry IV, Part 1, Act 5. For Heidi White and for Bryn LeBlanc, thank you for joining us. And as always, happy reading. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.